Good morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Psalm 139. As we continue in this series, we're calling the God Is series. Yes, another in the wild themed VBS title, because as Brother Sean mentioned last Sunday, God changed what we thought our plans might be. In a similar manner to the way that Jesus spoke in the Gospel of John, where he's recorded giving the seven I am statements to help his disciples understand who he was, we're able to look back through scripture at certain characteristics of our God and say, he is. Now, I'm not even going to pretend like I can stand up here and merely define God. However, scripture does give us certain characteristics that we can look at and describe him. After all, the best way to know someone and to love them is to know them better. I believe that God invites us to know and trust in what we know so that we will love and follow him. You see, I would be willing to bet that many, if not all, religious questions and Christian reservations stem from one source, that being a lack of understanding of who God is, and furthermore, a lack of trust in what we do know. Secondly, who we are and the relationship between us. If you don't believe me, look at the first recording of man. When God put Adam and Eve into the garden, Satan came to them in an attempt to turn them from God. He told them that if they ate from the tree of life, that they would become like God. What they didn't know in that moment, or at least failed to recognize, what they, was that they were already like God. Just chapters earlier, in the account of creation, we read, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. They were created in the image of God, but in the moment of temptation, they failed to understand and recognize who God was. I believe this is what leads us today to questions like, if God knew about my past, would he want me or love me? More commonly, if God were truly all good and all powerful, why would bad things happen, and especially bad things to good people? I'm not claiming to know all the answers to these questions, but I do believe that if we wanted to more fully understand, we would need to more fully know what scripture tells us about God, and in turn, trust in what we do know. If you haven't yet turned to Psalm 139, go ahead and split your Bible in half and turn back to 139. It's the largest book, so we should be able to find it. As we walk through this psalm, I'm going to make it as clear as possible as we look at the omnipotence of God. Now, I know you used that word, and some of you went ahead and nodded off already. But in all seriousness, even the word almighty is not something we use. I wouldn't get done with a workout and say, I feel almighty. It's a word that's seldom used in culture in our daily conversations. Could this be, however, because it cannot correctly be attributed to anyone? I would argue yes. By very definition, almighty is a term that can only be correctly attributed to one person or thing. If I claim to be almighty, then by simplest explanation, you could not be. You could be mighty, but not almighty, as that in this instance belongs to me. Clearly, the point of that illustration is not to claim that I'm all-powerful, but rather to show that Almighty can only truly be given to one person or thing correctly. What I want to do today is help give insight as to why the word Almighty could be one of the best possible descriptions of the one true God of the universe. If you're taking notes, I'm going to make it as clear as possible. By walking through Psalm 139, I'm going to highlight four other characteristics of God that help shine light onto his omnipotence. And then I will conclude with the three responses I believe we should have given what we know. Read along with me in Psalm 139. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. 
This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. In these first six verses, we see one characteristic stand out glaringly, omniscience. Omniscient simply means all-knowing. God knows everything. You might be tempted at first to think, this seems a little intrusive. However, we must remember that King David originally wrote this as a song, a praise to God. He's not worried that someone's snooping in on his business. Rather, he's exalting God for knowing him so intimately. And we don't just have to take David's words for it. In Luke chapter 5, verses 17, 17 through 26, we get an account of the actions of the incarnate God. On one of those days while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem, and the Lord's power to heal was in him. Just then, some men came carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him in on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. My intent for reading this is to show that God knows the thoughts of man. He knows your thoughts. He knows my thoughts. He knows them even if we're trying to keep them to ourselves. God knows where you are, where you have been, and where you're going. He knows what you've said and what you're going to say before the thought even enters your mind. And what's more, the very things that we might think are hidden that we would never tell anyone about, and if we think that God knew them, we think that he might not want us or love us anymore, God knows them. Few people know this more than the author of the psalm himself. The same King David who wrote this psalm, who was a man after God's own heart, slayed Goliath, was recorded in the second book of Samuel, coveting another man's wife, sleeping with her, and attempting to cover it up after she became pregnant. He even went as far as having the man killed. No matter what David tried to do after that, God knew. God knows everything you've done, and he knows everything you are going to do. But far greater, he's already paid the price for all of yours and all of my sins, so that we no longer live in slavery to our sins, having to hide, the sh hide in the shame and numbing with the pain but rather live as children of God who have life in Christ. God reminds us in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, the Lord declares. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What this scripture tells us about God sh should encourage us. We should be able to leave fear and worry behind. We don't have a God who's distant with no relationship to us, Rather, we have a God who has intimate knowledge of our situations and of every moment of our lives. Understanding that God is all-knowing is what allows us to take comfort in times of need. God knows you, and he knows you intimately. So stop hiding. There's no need to cover up your sins as if they might be unknown. Our God has intimate knowledge of you. So take heart, brothers and sisters. Our God is all-knowing. Let's continue on in the psalm. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. As we read on, we see another characteristic of God appear in the scripture, omnipresence. Simply put, God is ever-present or always present. Now, this can be difficult to grasp, and I don't claim to know all that God is and does. However, scripture does allow us to understand, at least on a most basic level, God's omnipresence. David acknowledges in the psalm that, if he, that there's nowhere he can go to escape God's presence. If he were to enter into the kingdom of heaven, he would experience eternity with God. If he were to make his bed in Sheol, he would spend eternity experiencing the wrath of God. There's few things that contrast as much as that, so it should be no question as to whether or not there's anywhere else we could flee from God's presence. Again, I would urge us not to be tempted into thinking this is concerning. The opposite is in fact true. We should be reassured to know that God is always present in our lives. For if we truly believe that God is great and that God is all-knowing and all-powerful, then we would want him to be present with us always. Shouldn't we in turn try to lean into him as much as possible? C.S. Lewis, a brilliant Christian apologist of the early 1900s, wrote in a book, Mere Christianity. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united with, with God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? If I lost you, I'm going to try to reel you back in. What I'm attempting to point out is what I believe C.S. Lewis was pointing out, that just as you could not be wet without the presence of water, you could not walk, talk, breathe. You couldn't live without the presence of God. This could be why a few of Jesus' last words to his disciples before ascending into heaven were, and remember, I am with you always until the end of the age. God took the form of man as Jesus the Son so that he might, by living a sinless life, being crucified in place of all our sins and resurrected from the dead, bring us into the presence of God eternally. So brothers and sisters, I bring us back again to the characteristic at hand. God's presence abides in us always. We have the promise of Jesus' Son and proof by walking, talking, living, and breathing that this is, in fact, the case. As we continue on in the psalm, we'll find the next characteristic that Scripture gives us. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. It should be clear from these few verses that as Jesus states in the Gospel of John, he is the light of the world. Again, this may seem difficult to grasp, but we must understand that we could never fully comprehend God. So what we know is simply what we're told through Scripture. When we venture back to Genesis, we find the first mention of light. Only three verses into the Bible, God says, let there be light. And there was light. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So we already see that God himself gave light to a world that, if you read in verse 2, was covered in darkness. But if we read on, we notice that it's not until the fourth day that God puts the sun in the sky. If you're like me, your eyes are now open to a new reality I'd not yet noticed. Even before the sun shone on the earth, God illuminated the world with his light. If I may borrow from my earlier point, we see that, as you must have the presence of water to be wet, the world had to have the presence of the true light to be illuminated. Put more simply, the world in darkness came into the presence of God's light and was no longer in darkness. 
Throughout the Bible, God uses light as a way to show himself and his glory to his people. After leading the Israelites out of Egypt, he led them through the wilderness by means of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai after speaking with God, his face was radiant. Forty days and nights with the Lord on Mount Sinai, and God's light was beaming off of Moses. In the New Testament, as Saul was on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him in a bright light from heaven. All of this to show that God is light. No words can drive this home as much as the words of God himself in the Gospel of John. Shortly shortly after his entry into Jerusalem, not long before his crucifixion, Jesus is asked in John chapter 12, Who is the Son of Man? He replied, The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. When Jesus freed us from slavery of sin, he made us children of God. As children of God, we are children of the light. And not only do we have the promise of walking in the light through Jesus, we have the promise of dwelling eternally in the light in heaven. In John's vision of the new creation that's documented in the book of Revelation, he states that the city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and the lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Both past, present, and future, whether on earth or in heaven, we are always in the presence of the light of the world, one that cannot be switched off, cannot be covered, and never runs out. God is light. Let's keep reading on in Psalm 139. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. As we come to the fourth characteristic that this psalm teaches us about God, I have to admit that I found this to be the most difficult. After reading, you might think that to be strange, for it seems to be an obvious truth. God is creator. But that's exactly why this was the most difficult to preach. We live in a world that, quite frankly, does not believe this, or at least does not acknowledge it. However, given what I know based on scripture, I can expound on the characteristic and mere truth that God is creator. I don't feel as if I need to remind us this morning of verses in Genesis that depict God's creation of man, though I have already mentioned them. If you remember back, we did a deep dive through creation earlier in the year as we walked through not only the creation of man, but of the entire universe. However, the amazing thing about this psalm is how David expands on the unknown manner of creation. Though we could never possibly understand what God does, especially in childbirth, it's truly amazing to read David's exaltation of God for the way he describes it. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. The absolute intimacy of this moment cannot be described as anything but awe-inspiring. The God of the universe, who we just acknowledge as all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful, knit every one of us together while we were, while we were unknown, He knows all of our days. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Brothers and sisters, if this does not leave you in awe of God, I really don't know what will. God created each and every one of us with intimate knowledge, love, and purpose. Unfortunately, we live in a world that tells us this is not the case. The world wants us to tell us we're in charge of our own bodies. The world will say, you do you, or be who you want to be. Can I be frank this morning? We live in a world that allows, worse yet, 
encourages at times the idea that it's perfectly fine to terminate a pregnancy and thus a God-given life if that life is deemed an inconvenience. That's not only heartbreaking, but it's blasphemous. To give life or to take life is to play God. And we do not play God, we obey God. We cannot put ourselves in place of God or use God as if he were a get-out-of-jail-free card or a lucky penny. I'd really like to get this promotion, God. I really like this girl, but I don't know what to do. God? And that seems lighthearted, but what about more difficult situations? My family member's in a lot of pain, or my close friend is rolling off the tracks. And that's not at all to say that if we pray to God, that he isn't attentive and able to do all that we ask. What I'm trying to point out is that we don't use God in our situations. God uses us in his divine plan. God speaking. I need someone to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Boom. Moses. I need a loyal leader to show my people what faithful kingship looks like. Boom. Shepherd boy. I need a man to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. Boom. Saul. And when Saul didn't follow God, God intervened. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You will no longer be Saul, but Paul, and I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. God created each man with an individual purpose. All of their days were written in his book before even a single one had begun. And don't let this world tell you that this only applies to certain people. Verse 14 applies to everyone on the face of the earth. You have been remarkably and wondrously made. All lives matter to God. You're not distinguished by your social influence, by your upbringing, your race, your physical appearance, or any other thing. Few stories could encompass this more than John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This man came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. And how similar our world reacts today. If the child's considered to be an inconvenience, they'll look immediately for a reason and an escape route. But they're completely missing God's plan. God created each person the way he did so that his works might be brought about through them. The late Ravi Zacharias, an Indian-born Christian apologist, told a great story about the nature of God's creation of man. He tells the story of the Pharisees coming to trap Jesus and his words. The Pharisees ask, "'Teacher, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar?' Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, asked them to bring him a coin. When, he, when they gave him the coin, Jesus responded, Whose image is on the coin? Caesar, they said. Give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, and give to God that which belongs to God. This is where Ravi continued saying, The Pharisees should have had a second question. They should have asked, Who, What belongs to God? To which Ravi said, I believe Jesus would have responded with, whose image is on you. If I lost you in the story, it follows like this. The image of Caesar is on the coin, so render that to Caesar. But the image of God is on you, so render your life to God. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. Each and every person has been created by God with a unique and individual purpose. Each one intimately woven together by a loving God. God is the creator. God gives life. Based on these four characteristics, I'm left with nothing to do but conclude that God is almighty. God created everything in the universe, and thus the only thing with more power than he would be something he gave that power. We know that not even the sun itself lit the world before God did, leaving us with the fact that God is the light of the world. We established that there's nowhere in the world we can escape from the presence of God, and in fact, it's only because of his presence that the world has life. 
And I highly doubt I would need to debate with anyone whether or not we're omniscient, when quite frankly, we can't even remember what we ate for breakfast this morning. So the only thing we can do would to take this knowledge and respond correctly with what we know. At this point in the psalm, David turns his words. He acknowledged God's characteristics and begins to respond to them. Levi Lesko, lead pastor of Fresh Life Church, wrote in a book, I Declare War, that there are three things that most define who we are, our thoughts, our words, and our actions. After I thought about it, this seemed to be true, for what we say stems from what we think, and what we do from what we say and think. Additionally, the more you say and do those things, the more you think about them. As we finish Psalm 139, I'm amazed by the way David responds to God with his thoughts, words, and actions. God, if only you would kill the wicked, or my apologies. God, how precious your thoughts are to me, how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. As we read that, we see that David's thoughts are consumed with God's thoughts. He already acknowledged that God knows all things and has an intimate knowledge of each and every one of us. And David delights in that thought. Why wouldn't we? Let me ask a question. Does what breaks God's heart break our hearts? Does what pleases God please us? See, I believe that if the things that, truly, that pleased God truly pleased us, we would focus on these things. And if what broke God's heart truly broke our hearts, we would rid ourselves of these thoughts. It's so easy for us to dismiss the thoughts we have because they may not lead to harmful words or actions. But God knows the intentions of our hearts. He knows what we're thinking. So we should be mindful of the advice the Apostle Paul gives us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Continuing on, God, if only you would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men stay away from me, who invoke you deceitfully, your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you. I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Now, some of you might still be holding on to my words from earlier that David wrote this originally as a song, and you're thinking, this just went from Hillsong to Slipknot in a hurry. You might be tempted to think, shouldn't we be loving everyone and not wishing them harm? And while it is true, we should show God's love to the world, David's making an important distinction here. The way he pleads with God and speaks about God recognizes that God is in control of all things. David doesn't just wish for people to be killed so that he might have more influence or power. David is showing his love for God. Lord, would you kill the wicked, your enemies who rebel and detest you? David is saying that if you want nothing to do with God, then he wants nothing to do with you. He's not going to sit around and laugh it up with people who dishonor God. He's not going to hang out with people who hate God. He considers them his enemies. The only way I know to most relate this to our world would be like someone coming up to you and your spouse, or if you're single, think you and your parents. And imagine they say to you, I hate your wife, or I hate your parents. I'm guessing your response might be something like, then I don't want to be around you. Because you love your spouse or your parents, you're not willing to be in the presence of that wicked person. David loves God so much that he doesn't even want to be around those who don't. As we move into the final two verses, we see again just how much David responds to God. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Finally, we see that as David has both thought and spoken in a manner that honor and love God, 
he asks God to change his actions. It's very important to note that David asks God to do these things. We already established that God is all-knowing, ever-present, and almighty, yet David asks God to work in his life. When we understand who God is, we're able to humble ourselves and ask God to change us, to test our ways, and to set our path straight. As I wrap up this sermon, I have to ask us, St. Louis Crossing Church, and I ask myself the same thing. Is this the kind of God we're serving? Is this the kind of God that we're worshiping? Is this the kind of God we're following? I think sometimes we forget, or maybe worse, we neglect the fact that our God is almighty, that our God is omniscient and ever-present, that he's the creator and sustainer of our lives and of all creation. I would encourage us all, better yet, I would urge us all to live in a way that reflects this kind of God in our lives, to speak in a manner that praises this kind of God, to think in a manner that both reveres and honors this kind of God. Or have we forgotten and neglected the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? Our created purpose is to glorify God and magnify Christ in all that we do. So brothers and sisters, let's run the race with endurance, exercising self-control in all that we do, with our gaze fixed upon the all-knowing, ever-present, creator and sustainer of the world, the light of the world, our Father and our friend, the almighty God of the universe. And if you're listening this morning and you don't know God, I plead with you to come into a relationship with him. Pray that God would open your heart and give you faith to believe in the saving grace of the almighty God found in Jesus. I'll leave us with 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is the message we heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sins, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to be able to open your word and read about who you are. Lord, we know that your ways are higher than our ways and that you have total control of our situations. Lord, we praise you for the creation of all we know and even more for lovingly creating each one of us. Lord, I know that every single life matters to you and that each one is brought about so that your works might be done. I praise you for the intimate knowledge you have of our every thought and deed. Thank you, God, that you're present with us always, for it is only because of you that we have life. Father, I pray that you continue to lead us in the light and would not allow us to stumble in the darkness. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning or anyone listening who does not know you and your saving grace, I pray that you would work in their hearts immediately. It's in the name of Almighty King Jesus that I pray. Amen.